Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, and while y'all were at the Eras Tour living your best Swifty lives, I had a slightly different anti-hero on the brain. David Chang's Secret Chef is out on Hulu, and Father Saul joins me to break down the first season. We discuss the concept, the contestants, the challenges, and ask ourselves whether one of the most iconoclastic chefs in the game succeeded in breaking the mold of cooking competition shows. Did the show make us lovers, or did it create some bad blood between us and the Major Domo Media family? Listen to find out. But first... It's been a couple of chaotic news weeks in food. Taco Maria has closed. John Tezar tried to get canceled. A diabolical service fee spreadsheet has burst onto the scene. And our city has been confronted with a port crisis that's squeezing barbecue pitmasters and carniceros alike. We discuss all of that and more coming up next. So if you're feeling the weight of the week gone by, dear listener, maybe just shake it off. Because without further ado, it's time to chow down. Joining us today on the pod is a man who once mistook a closet for a bathroom at a party. It's Father Saul. Jesus How you doing today, Father Saul? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I went. I went to the bathroom to look for a jacket. That was a mix-up. <laughs> that that that's how, that's what happened. Look, uh, we don't have to tell the listeners the details. Uh, they they can know the the broad strokes, but. Needless to say, he was not invited back to that particular party venue. Good Lord. Hello from the Windy City, man. How you doing? Dude, Chicago. I love your dedication to uh, recording the LA Food Podcast anywhere but LA. I literally packed my new professional <laughs> mic uh, in, in, in my carry-on. I was a little... Weirdly, my girlfriend and I watched a bunch of 9-11 documentaries yesterday, right, right before I flew, and then I packed this microphone in my backpack, and I was like... I don't know. It looks weird. It looks a little suspicious. Let's hope nothing <laughs> happens. Let's hope nothing happens. Yeah. But yeah, no, as long, as long as I'm not in Los Angeles to record the LA food pod, I'm happy to be here. What do you, uh, what brings you to the Windy City? Do you have any fun culinary plans? A couple, a couple of fun culinary plans. I'm letting my buddy John uh, plan out our itinerary. And tonight we're going Ethiopia in a spot called Demera. Uh, which looks really good. Very excited for that, and I'm really hungry. I will. I didn't do enough like planning ahead for the trip to like get a reservation that ever um, or something like that mm. for the fair, or even maybe I'll try to swing by like the 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 restaurant that's the actual beef in real life or something. That'd be kind of cool. Um, but for future Chicago trips, we'll try to we'll try to ramp up the fine da- dining. You have to try an Italian beef sandwich. Tell me what you think. Also, recently I had two Chicago food items, which I would love your take on. One mm. is a Chicago-style hot dog, and two is a Chicago-style uh, tavern-style pizza pie. So not their right. deep dish, but that thin, crispy tavern-style pie. I would love to hear from the horse's mouth in Chicago, if you're able to have an authentic version of each, what you think. Ooh, I, yeah, yeah. I'll try. I'll see what I can track down. Yeah, absolutely. The weirdest part of the Chicago dog for me was they put tomatoes on it, which feels... Not like the kind of thing you would do in a city that experiences a lot of winter. Right. You even mentioning that makes me not super want to try the Chicago dog. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest. But tavern pizza sounds great. That, that, that's right up my alley. Okay. Well, I look forward to you doing neither of those things. Look. <laughs> you know me so well, bro. <laughs> today, I know. It's, it's disturbing. 
Today we are going to be discussing uh, television, so I wanted to kick this off with a little bit of an icebreaker, since you haven't been on the pod in a while, uh, that I got from a TV show. So, as you know, I'm a big fan of Love Island, and one of the contestants asked another contestant a really deep philosophical question, which I was going to text you in the moment, but then I thought, Actually, I'll just ask him this on the pod because I, I think it's really important for the listeners to know this, know how you would answer this, to learn something about you as the co-host of the of the LA Food Pod. So are you ready for I'm it? A little worried. I'm a little worried. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Would you rather have uh-huh. sex with a dolphin, but uh-huh. nobody knows? So sex with a dolphin, but nobody knows. Or would you rather not have sex with a dolphin? But everybody thinks you did. Your reputation is you're the guy who had sex with the dolphin. Definitely the latter. I think definitely the latter. I I I don't want to fuck a dolphin. I'm just gonna be straight. And also, <laughs> the thing you do there's there's a there was like a quote that was on like my third grade classroom wall. It was like, "What you do when no one's watching is who you really are." And I don't really want to be the guy who fucks dolphins. So at least look. I can make it. I think there's a way to spin it out. Like it's a funny story. I have plenty of embarrassing stories in my past that I can spin out and be like, "Yeah, Goofy saw that one time." But I will know deep down. I mean, not even that deep down that I never did it. Makes me much happier. Yeah, I think a big thing for you too is like you'd have to get in the ocean to actually fuck the dolphin. Which great point. I somehow the- didn't even think of that. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna yeah. get, like, fuck a dolphin and get eaten by a shark. Sounds like a terrible time. No. No. Yeah. Bad idea for you as someone with a crippling fear of the ocean. No, I think I think that is pretty much what I expected from you. But uh, now our listeners know too. There you go. Why does this? What does that have to do with anything? I'm sorry. Look, it's just it's just I I, I heard a great tip. You gotta you gotta learn about the people behind the podcast, and so I want I want people to learn a little bit about you. Okay, so speaking of learning about people's different personalities, though, I wanted mm. to kick off today's podcast with. Some news that a, a, a friend of the pod made, um, not really a friend of the pod so much as a character on a show that we like, aka Top <laughs> Chef, Chef John Tezar of, I want to say, South Carol- the South Carolina season? So yeah, season, what Seattle, was that? Seattle, actually. Seattle, initially, oh. and then South Carolina All-Stars, yeah. So he's a double dipper, and he is a Dallas-based chef, but... He also is uh, the name, the face behind a restaurant at a hotel down in Laguna Cliffs, a fancy restaurant. He was caught on camera saying some interesting things to some striking workers. Did you catch this? You sent me the article. I'm actually going to be honest. I didn't read the article beyond like he gave the middle finger and cussed them out. So I don't know the context, but I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> the video is taken from the perspective of the striking worker at, at, at the hotel. They're like the restaurant workers from the hotel uh, in Laguna Cliff. I think it's a Marriott or something like that. And uh, he's basically seen going up to the workers and saying stuff like, Oh, you're 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 a horrible person. You're so lazy. You bendeha, not not pendeha, bendeha. Yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> and he says you can take your strike and shove it up your ass. And he's giving them wow. the middle finger. It's honestly like if you want to get canceled, he he checked all the boxes. Yeah, and I think if I if I recall correctly, he had like a reputation. He has had a reputation for a long time about being kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> I, I think is the the thing, and he used Top Chef. 
I, the impression is that he used Top Chef to kind of launder his reputation a little bit and like came back and like try, was trying to like be really nice on the show and not a dick. But I think he might be a dick in real life. And uh, yeah, this confirms that. I don't know what he was yeah. thinking. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know. He's he's known as the most hated chef in Dallas. Uh, that's sort there of like his moniker. So yeah, so not not exactly uh, someone you necessarily want to be associated. But look, moving on from that story to one about that also features upset people uh, uh, in and around restaurants. So there's a Google Sheet going around uh, in hmm. in Los Angeles that somebody created that logs all of the service charges at the various Los Angeles restaurants. And it's been mm. making new. Like somebody got really upset about all of the uh, service charges at restaurants, created a spreadsheet, and it, it's become like, you know, kind of like a, a, a cult phenomenon here in Los Angeles. It, it tracks all of the service charges. It has little notes in it about like, you know, reservation policies and what they do with their service charges and whatnot. My question for you is, has corporate culture ruined dining? Has corporate culture ruined di- ruined dining? I don't think so. And it's also I don't know if that would, question would be my takeaway from this news necessarily. It, it, in the sense, because like I I don't I also will say I don't like service charges are a bit of a mystery right to the diner and and how they're used. And I know there are certainly cases where those charges do not go to the actual people providing service right and and to waiters and stuff. That's that's not good. That's that's generally bad behavior but i also know that tipping is not a very good like it's essentially like a service you know courtesy right not a great system either um so yeah has corporate culture ruined dining no i don't think so but i do think you know service charges i loop in with kind of you know tipping culture prices living wages wage theft these various issues of like the economics behind how dining and and hospitality works and i'm assuming this person was like a, a disgruntled customer probably from like beverly hills who's like a multimillionaire and could definitely afford to pay service charges but doesn't want to well that's why i asked the question has corporate culture ruined dining this this strikes me as someone who got bored at their like fake email job and right, was right, like right, right. you know what i'm really pissed off about i'm really pissed <laughs> off about these service charges so I'm going to create a way to dox all of these restaurants that have these hidden service charges. Hidden? It's not hidden. It's on all. It's yeah. it's on all of their their the checks when you get them. You know, just just take a minute and read. I think it's even on a lot of menus, frankly, before you menus. even order. Yeah, yeah. Usually, yeah. And this corporate, you know, disgruntled worker created this spreadsheet and sent it around to all their friends. And one of their friends was like, you know what? I know somebody at Eater. I'm going to send it to them. And now it's a whole thing. People are going to be looking at this spreadsheet being like, oh, this restaurant has a 5% service charge and this one has an 18% service. I'm going to the one with a 5%, you know? I I just think like, guys, we're overthinking this a little bit. Yeah, I I think like if you go, my, my, my fundamental perspective generally is like, if you go out to eat, you and and you're planning to spend money. You need to know you have enough money to to tip heavily or you know tip appropriately, right? And 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 to pay relevant service charges. I think it's fair to ask where the service charges go, right? That kind of transparency could prevent bad behavior. But yeah, this sounds like a guy who's like getting a divorce and his kids hate him. And instead of going to therapy, he's like, <laughs> I have a lot. He's a lot of anger. <laughs> he's gonna go go use it in this maybe not so productive way. But honestly, if it comes, if it does, like kind of you know raise some questions as to why 
XX restaurant has a 25% service charge. And it turns out like the, you know, corporate overlord of the restaurant or the restaurant chain that owns the group is actually skimming that all off. Then I'm like, okay, no, that's we should something, something that should be brought to light. But it's not the same thing as something like reservation fees, right? Which I know like we, we saw an article about that this week as well, which I think sound completely reasonable, right? Or a 10 to 15% service charge to guarantee that they have enough to like distribute among their their staff. I, I, I will say tipping culture to me has never made a lot of sense and service service charges that are not like charges that are not built into the menu or the cost uh, to guarantee wages and like and like you know that you're charging your food effectively like or at an appropriate level to make enough margin doesn't always make sense to me but yeah i don't know i look i think it's a good point i think that the best case scenario for this is transparency right i mean we did talk about this about the practice of those restaurants in hollywood like katine and mother wolf being accused of stiffing their workers as uh, was the John and Vinny group, like all of these restaurants have sort of like fielded these accusations. So if the best case scenario here is that these restaurants face added transparency and we're sort of shaming them into doing the right thing, yeah, there is, there's probably some positive benefits out of that. But I don't know. To me, it just seems like let's let people live a little bit, you know? Let them live. Let them live. You bring up the excellent topping of reservation fees, and I thought this was a this is a really interesting concept to me. So, Eater put out an article this week about the rise of the reservation fee, and it's a topic that's gaining a lot of popularity with restaurants who face a couple issues, which are there's no shows when it comes to reservations, there's bots, there's scalpers who like buy the reservation and then try to pawn it off on other people for a profit. And um, oftentimes that results in people not showing up for the reservation and the restaurant loses money on that. So what some restaurants are doing is they are charging people a deposit for the reservation. Sometimes it's a deposit that goes back on the card. Other times it's a deposit that actually gets put towards the meal. I think this is a great idea. It covers the restaurant's ass. And also, I think what it does is it weeds out people who are just snagging up reservations and leaves the reservations for the good people like us who are actually going to show up. I'm all for this. What do you think? No, no. This is necessary, right? In the world of Open Table and Resi and and other sort of uh, online reservation apps, this must be in it. I'm actually surprised sometimes at how low reservation charges are. They should... In my mind, given the risk of like a no-show, which is a real impact on on the restaurants' like revenue and bottom line, like I I I will I expect to see them cranking up more towards fifty or so dollars, um, depending on the restaurant. But like, yeah, no, it has to be done. I, this is something that, uh, yeah, this is this is like a logical thing to me. It, it makes sense. I've been guilty of making an open table reservation or or like having parents in town and be like. All right, do we want this spot? Do we want this spot? And then like you cancel the other spot like maybe a little too soon and you worry about it. Like I and I think it's completely reasonable for restaurants to like make sure they have at least some money coming in for a table. Um, because people not showing up is is terrible. <laughs> it's not good for sure. not good for the business. Does everybody do that? Because I've definitely been guilty of that too, like making multiple reservations in one night when you have out of towners in town or something like that. And, you know, you know, you're only going to go to one, but you make multiple just in case. And yeah, you do your best about canceling the one you know you're not going to go to in time, but it doesn't always work out. 
is that something that we should probably stop doing? Maybe, maybe we are the problem. <laughs> maybe they're, they're like they're, they're saying that, so they really mean Saul and Luca are not are not showing up for the reservation. I don't, I don't think it's uncommon uh, for especially for like you know groups or something, or like I said, family or whatever special occasions where you want where you're not sure what people want and you want to have an option or two in place. Then again, we are also people who love an itinerary and like to plan shit out a lot, and so maybe we are we are one of the few. I think the the more legitimate problem based on on the reporting seems to be that bots are like an actual problem here right and like booking up tickets kind of a resale them just like Ticketmaster and and other you know ticket sales sites have had similar issues with like uh, scalping essentially um or, or resales uh, but in, th- in that case at the very least someone's buying the ticket in the first place and then just like reselling at a high cost in this case if someone doesn't take the reservation restaurant screwed so yeah absolutely they should they should be charged you know what we need for people like you and i we need a list of the best restaurants for walk-ins. Like restaurants where you're guaranteed to have a seat for walk-in that's still good. Maybe it's a restaurant mm. that's not quite as hot as it used to be. Maybe it's like, you know, five or six years old. You can still get a table. Or maybe it's just a restaurant that doesn't take reservations or something like that. So that when you're planning an itinerary, yes, you have your reservation. But then your backup is like one of these places nearby that doesn't take a reservation. I love that, Brent. I hope you're listening. The infatuation, you just shot another infatuation list idea right over to you. Oh my God. Speaking of, let's talk about how the, fa- the fact that Eater steals all of our shit. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> what was the other one? There were like three separate articles now where you and I have talked about something on this podcast and a week later, Eater's like, hey, here's this cool, cool new headline we thought of. And it's like, sounds familiar, Eater. Look, 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 look. No shade towards Eater. I love love all our friends there. Karen, Virali, you, you know, uh, Eater, we're big fans. But this has happened a couple times now, and it is starting to raise questions at LA Countdown slash LA Food Podcast HQ. Most recently, what happened is Eater, and, and this was not Eater LA, to be fair. It was Eater Chicago. They put out an entire article predicting how the bear season three will unfold, which is a literal bit we did here like three weeks ago. It's a national conspiracy. They're watching us. They're, they're, trying, they're trying to squash us and they're trying to steal our shit. The way Zuckerberg like buys his competitors, that's what's happening here, man. They just try to copy the product. Uh, and no, who, who else could have possibly come up with the idea, the purely original idea of anticipating future bear storylines? Who, who, <laughs> who, who in this world could have ever come up with it if not us? So yeah, I don't trust yeah. it. I don't trust it either. We are very much the uh, the Twitter to their threads. That that makes us Elon Musk though, which I'm not crazy about. But what I did, I did appreciate their takes. They went more in a general direction. They were like, uh, okay, their 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 predictions were Carmi wrestles his demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one was bring on the beverages. I guess they they anticipate some sort of cocktail program coming to life at uh, right. at the bear. So something to do with a critical splash, which we kind of had too in terms of like yep. them achieving wild success. And then finally, some sort of star power angle, which I quite liked. Um, but, you know, to me, to me, this is kind of a phone in. I would have liked to see an entire episode written out the way we did it. Then again, these people probably have real jobs. We is in quotes for that one. You, you, your, your, your ten minute monologue of a of a spec script. Uh, not quite a we a we thing. But no, I I did like this article, I, and I think it was re- what I would have liked. Yeah, some riskier takes would have been fun too. I think these are pretty reasonable, like in in the realm 
I did the, the the cocktail program one is interesting, or like a sommelier coming in just in terms of introducing a new character to the restaurant dynamic was an interesting idea because those characters have been pretty set for two seasons now. I do wonder as they grow, right? Are they going to bring in new dynamics and personalities into the restaurant itself? Um, and the Carmi wrestles the demons. Yeah, he'll have to do that. Uh, the celebrity thing I wasn't so sure about, but I do think I, it actually made me realize that I think what they'll get is like a maybe middling review or something initially, or like a like a kind of like a like a B plus, right, or a B, not like a knockout the park. That almost makes it too easy. Uh, and then there's like kind of like a commentary on like the review culture and like actually how good our restaurant critics at identifying, you know, great dishes or great work. They kind of touch on that a little bit in season one um, where Kami was calling the, the, the uh, reviewer a hack because he didn't identify mm-hmm. that the sandwiches were different or stuff like that, uh, which would also just be Kami being like a little bitch. But uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm just excited for season, season three. I watched it again uh, with Emily. We watched the whole two, whole two seasons in like 48 hours. It was like a marathon. Um, So I just, yeah, can't get enough of Bear. I still can't get my wife to finish season two. So, or actually I think she's still (laughs) finishing season one actually. So, uh, but we'll get there. We'll get there. She's committed to the cause. It's just, you know, uh, it's uh, slow and steady wins the race. Uh, I I think the uh, critic angle is really interesting. What I would like to see, and this may be another spec script coming, although I'm not going to cross the picket line. Come on. We're we're sag strong here. Okay. Um, I think it would be interesting if Carmi has a romantic interest in the food reviewer, in the food critic, you know, almost like mm-hmm. uh, almost like a, a rom-comification of the bear. I always thought that would be an interesting angle for a rom-com. Wow. Uh, you are you are a chaotic writer, man. <laughs> you, <laughs> between between that idea and the spec script, there's just a. Uh... Just a lot of a lot of romance happening in, in Luca world, and everyone can fuck anyone. I guess is the is the core tenant of the Luca writing, the L- Luca school of writing. <laughs> Another twist. Another twist. The food critic. It's a dolphin. <laughs> stupid, stupid. Although you know, not to. I'm not sure the. I'm not sure that I don't want to mess with our, our run of show here. But someone who's talked a lot about the uh, the influence of food reviewers and the negative sort of impact they can have on restaurants and chefs is Dave Chang, who I know we'll be talking about today as well a little bit. Yeah, we're going to get to the Dave Chang portion of the podcast here in just a little bit. But that that's a good point. It's a really interesting discussion, the relationship between critic and uh, and restaurateur and chef. And also, also, I think the distance between critic and the public, honestly. like yeah. I think that the takes that critics have are so far off what the public has sometimes. You know what I would love to see? I would love to see for restaurants a rotten tomatoometer, which is like no. the critic. Dude, yeah, the oh, critic oh, I see. score. I see what you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, Critic yeah, yeah. score next to the public score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, rotten tomatoes, I think, is like an evil thing to begin with. And Yelp is, of course, the audience score of restaurants right now. But there's no aggregate for like, you know, the critical score or whatever. So, yeah, that, that that's kind of interesting. This is one of our favorite topics on the podcast, right? We had like the whole idea of like, yo, what if the what if food awards were like 30 percent voted on by the general public, 30 percent by the industry, 30 percent by critics and stuff like that? I mean, I, I, I just find it like a continually like fascinating thing. And I do hope they get into it in, in season three. It'd be really interesting. And given that they seem to be going for a star, I'm sure it'll become relevant to the show. 
Yeah, I'm I'm still hoping for a uh, a sort of like Carmi gets canceled storyline. I think that would be really interesting. <laughs> and uh, I, I've said it in jest before, but I actually think it would be really interesting. And it would also be interesting to see what happens uh, with Sid literally having to take over the helm, you know? Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't, cancel will be, I mean, look, Car- Carmi certainly has an ongoing edge as we saw that and, and, uh, and like bad behavior. Cancel would be a bit far for me. I don't know if I'd see that happen. But I do think there might be an interesting conversation about like what Carmi gets from his role or his obsession in, in with with the restaurant, right? And whether I, I wouldn't I think I think your prediction that at some point Sid will be the sole point, the sole lead of the restaurant in some way, shape, or form is probably accurate. I could see this the show kind of trending towards its end to like Sid pursues her passion in an healthy way with the right kind of balance, hopefully. And Carmi realizes he has to like step back in some sort of way to to have a full and balanced life. Yeah. Well, look, we could talk about the bear all day, but uh, I suppose we should move to some real life topics. So I'd like to quickly touch on the closing of a real life restaurant. It's an iconic restaurant here in Southern California. Taco Maria in Orange County announced a couple weeks ago that it was closing and it kind of came out of the blue as one of Los Angeles or, you know, the Los Angeles greater area's best restaurants probably of the last decade. What's interesting to me about this is that this is the second closure in a short period of time of a restaurant in sort of an upscale mall. And I'm just wondering, Hmm. is this the death of mall restaurants? Do we just not like mall (laughs) restaurants as diners? No, well, so my understanding is that they closed at this location because rent at the mall that they were at was too high or something, or they they had a deal like their deal with the landlord got screwed up. Very sunset beer like, if I'm not mistaken. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. So it's a thing where uh, maybe what's happening is that locations at upscale malls are actually like one. I do one. I will actually say. Malls are not great spots, I think, for restaurants, as we mm-hmm. saw from the seafood restaurant we visited recently, and then now Taco Maria Angler. That's right, which we really enjoyed, and I believe closed as well um, uh, recently. Uh, I think just in terms of location to draw, bring people in for that kind of level of dining doesn't it doesn't quite fit as a vibe. And I think there's also this reality that, like as we as we're seeing with other like with other uh, articles that came out this week, costs of uh, ingredients are rising, inflation is really impacting the industry and margins, uh, cost margins are so thin that if something like a, a rental agreement, gets too expensive, then it's just not going to work out. And I imagine at an upscale mall spot, that would be the case. So I, I expect to see Tacos Maria, Taco Maria back somewhere or in some form, at the very least the chef will be uh, based on, based on the article that I think I saw. Um, but yeah, it is a bummer. It is a bummer. It is a sign of times changing, I think, in, in, in some significant ways. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the pendulum is, it's, it's like swinging again. It's almost like, I feel like in the last recession, I'm talking like the Great Recession of 2008, that sort of gave birth to like the food truck movement. Like chefs right. could not afford brick and mortar so they started doing it on their own and taco maria also started as a taco truck then sort of as like the economy picked up you know uh obama obama was killing it you know uh bringing the the economy back 
and uh, they started to open more brick and mortars. And now, maybe also because of the inflation, there's obviously been talks of another recession for a long time. We're seeing the pendulum swing back, and I think a lot of the most interesting concepts are happening once again in these pop-up destinations um, yeah. or you know, in places where they don't have to pay rent, like Poltergeist, which is not, yeah. not, a, not a pop-up. Diego, it's not a pop-up, but it's a concept inside another place where they're, they're not, they're not, they didn't have to like take over the rent entirely, I don't think, right? So I, mean, I think it's in some ways a really exciting time uh, to be a restaurateur and other time, in other ways, a really scary time, which brings us to the next topic, which is, did you know we're facing a pork crisis here in Los Angeles and frankly in the nation? I, I did not know. I do know now. And this is, I think, an interesting topic. This is right up my alley. Oh, is it? I thought you were going to be like, I do not care about this topic because no, I'm a no, brisket no. boy. <laughs> I am a brisket boy. I will say that. I had no idea, by the way, that brisket margins were particularly thin and that barbecue places really made their money on pork. That was a cool, cool fact we learned from this uh, Los Angeles Times article. No, it's right up my alley because it's a question of of, of policy and priorities, right? And what we value and then who, how, how decisions like, hey, we want to make sure animal, animals that we eat are treated humanely, how that then trickles down to other people's livelihoods and how we then as like a, as like a state in the case of California and as a, as a broader society, I guess, determine what we really value. And, you know, reading this article one, like Ray's Barbecue, I, I like watch documentaries about those guys and, 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 their, and their dad and, and how they uh, kept the restaurant going and, and, and their father's wake. And obviously, like we, we talk about barbecue all the time with Moose Craft and others on this podcast, but it's, it's not the worst thing to be eating less pork. And it's not a bad thing at all to treat animals humanely and therefore show the cost of having to treat animals humanely in the food itself. Now, that's difficult for people who are running these restaurants that we care a lot about. But in my personal opinion, like that, that cost should be reflected, right? Uh, in yeah. some way, shape, or form. So, listeners, the article that we're referencing, it was a Los Angeles Times article put out last week, I want to say. Basically, there's a proposition that's taking effect, Proposition 12. It's something that we voted on a few years ago. And, uh, it's a measure that requires us in California that the pork that's being served, and it's not just pork, it, 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 it extends to other meats as well, but pork seems to be the, the sort of meat that's most deeply affected by this. The pigs basically need to have better living conditions during their life uh, than they currently do. And obviously what that does is it raises prices. It's making things very difficult for the, the wholesale producers, the farmers, and it's having a downstream effect on a lot of businesses in Los Angeles, predictably, that make their living off of pork. Obviously, that's places like carnitas shops, which literally are just about the pork. Also, some of our favorite barbecue spots, which as we alluded to, yes, they serve things other than pork, like Saul's beloved brisket, but in order to be able to serve that brisket, they need the wider margins of the pork to fund that brisket. So as Saul is like listing out here, it's a really interesting debate about treating animals humanely versus ensuring that people are still able to make a livelihood. And honestly, you could probably boil all politics down to this simple question. Mm -hmm. Wait, of treating animals humanely or people's livelihoods? <laughs> 
No, it's it's basically like good good policy that sounds good, and balancing yeah. that with allowing people to still make a living and still be able yeah, to with, prosper. That's right. With economic impact, yeah, uh, I, I think that's right. And look at, at, and I think there's legitimate arguments to be made. Now there are also some interesting dynamics here, and this is also happens with policy where the major wholesalers and suppliers to punish California for this policy, right? And to and to make, make their dissatisfaction with rising the rising cost of adherence known may be causing this this squeeze a little bit. And like basically creating pressure in the state for folks to advocate for the policies on pork to maybe be rescinded or brought down. So those companies bottom line, that's a whole other thing. And I and I, don't, I think we have to look deeper into uh, how how true that is. But look, it's a it's easy to say from from my vantage point, but it always has seemed to me to be that that policy should protect things that uh, that that I believe are social good, which like so environmental policy, right, and and uh, and policies of health, things where uh, uh, people broadly benefit, right, and create the, uh, a foundation, a base from which we are you know healthy as a society. Animals are, I, to me, are included in that, right? Animals should be treated humanely. There's a whole the food industry is like really, really fucked up, and like there's and and even even this policy is like a drop in the bucket, right? Um, and once we're able to move policy in those ways to protect things that I, I believe that we should care about, the costs are going to be the costs for a period of time, and the economy will adjust, tastes will adjust, and 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 people look, it's not going to be <laughs> easy. But yeah, if it's the cost of making sure the life of an animal is 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 fair, then you should. I, I think we should do that. Um, I think the fundamental issue is that we've been used to the prices produced by really cheaply, shittily produced meat for way too yeah. long. Like yeah. the cost of meat should fundamentally be different than what it is. The problem yes. is, we as consumers are going to have a really hard time adjusting to that. Not you and I personally, but you know, like in general, the populace is going to go to McDonald's and be like, wait, my Mac rib is costing me how much now? I think I'll pass, you know, I think I'll go get some chicken or something like that. And that that's going to take some time to shift. But you know, if you, if you were looking to go out and get sushi, you expect that fish to be a certain price because mm-hmm. because of the way it's raised, because of the way society's expectations are. You know, I think I see this as a problem that in the short term is going to hurt a lot. And my question for you is, what do you think we can do as consumers to help these business owners in the meantime? Uh, it's an interesting question because, uh, uh, and, and you're totally right that like consumer behavior will will slowly shift to like in response to prices. Uh, I don't know. Well, first of all, we should be eating less meat generally. <laughs> like, it, it's not a bad thing for us that to eat less meat. Mo- and that ain't going to help Moosecraft. I know it's not. And maybe, and to answer your question, maybe what it is is like, hey, look, like, if I have a if I have a choice of where to spend my dollar for me, like, I want to, like, let's let's like try to be a bit more thoughtful or intentional with where I go spend that. And and look, it's a, it's a consumer's choice. Maybe you like the steak at, I don't know, but. Uh, Bestia, I don't know if they have steak. I don't, know. I don't think they do. But at a steakhouse, right? I want to go to a steakhouse and have like a nice piece of steak or a pork chop. I'm going to go there. We might say, you and I, 
hey, for for the meat, I'm like out for a meal I'm gonna have and spend a little more money than than I might have been used to. I'm gonna go and support Moose Craft Barbecue, but also because of the price of meat and because it's generally not good for either us ourselves or like like to eat as regular we do or the environment or whatever. Uh, we'll be eating like reducing the overall intake. That's not that's those aren't bad things. But yeah, I think like. I, and I'm not. I should say I'm not particularly concerned about Moosecraft yet. I don't think because Moosecraft is a Michelin recognized, like stellar, you know, place. The places like Rays, where who are serving more, like I don't know, who are maybe slightly more under the radar and have like really a more heavily rely on ribs and, and pork, are the ones who are going to um, maybe 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 suffer more. And the Carnitas shops that you mentioned. So I don't know. I don't know the exactly the right thing to do. Totally. And we have the. Um, privilege of having a maybe a little bit enough disposable cash to still buy our pork but uh i think it's more of like a let's wait and see what happens here i think what i would do if i were to start a campaign about this in order to like a consumer campaign on supporting pork run businesses is cut down on your meat consumption at home like save your dollars at home and get into some more vegetable forward cooking or you know invest in the cheaper meats at home and stuff like that like get into awful if you really can't live off meat or something like that and then uh save your dollars for spending at the restaurants knowing that the prices are going to go up i i think that that's that's probably the the way that we as consumers can best support the businesses who are feeling the crush without feeling the crush ourselves yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And also, I mean, look, it, I don't know. I don't know where our our uh, listeners stand generally, but this is a policy that I imagine we want to be a success and be able to hold up as, as a success story in California so that other states can, you know, similarly protect like the, the well-being of animals. Of course, they're still being raised for slaughter, which is not great. <laughs> like, like, but I mean, uh, like uh, <laughs> we should recognize that, like not beat around the bush here. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a really interesting. I think it's a really interesting question and a really interesting like article that 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 delves into the different sides of of how a how a group of people make a decision about what what they prioritize and what they care about. Yeah, and we will post the article in the show notes, dear listener. Uh, look, we're gonna move on to a lighter topic before we get on to talking about Dave Chang's uh, Secret Chef show. Did you see that Dave Portnoy is having a pizza festival in New York? This is uh, not a ladder topic for me. Fuck Dave Fortnite. I don't care. What is, his reviews are one bite. Is that am I, I? I saw this. I saw the fucking. He's doing a pizza fest. Blah 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 blah. I don't yeah. care. This guy. This guy sucks. <laughs> so his famous saying is "one bite, everybody knows the rules." The problem is, uh, he definitely takes multiple bites when he does the review. He does one. one yeah, of the, yeah, he yeah. bites the tip. He bites the crust, and then he typically has a review ready. You know. Friend of the pod, Tanya Kohler, the food curator at Outside Lands, is going to be curating this. And so, you know, definitely rooting for her. Good um, for Tanya. Yeah, good <laughs> rooting for Tanya. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Tanya. Uh, my rooting, bad. Rooting, rooting for Tanya. I don't, she probably won't be listening to this. She's going to be busy with Outside Lands this weekend. So don't worry. You haven't besmirched your name too bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, look, I, I, I think I'm going to definitely want to go to this. Come on. Even though you hate... <laughs> It's like it's like it's like hating the artist versus hating the the art, you know? Like 
he's That's ultimately fair. doing a yeah, yeah. good service by bringing all these pizzerias together. It's in New York, um, but I would love to see him bring this to Los Angeles. I would totally go. The pizza festival we had here in April was awesome, but I do think that there's something about this guy's pull on pizzerias for some reason that just attracts hmm. it, it, it attracts people like a like a like a a fly to the what was what's the word like a moth to the lamp am i paraphrasing moth to a flame. here moth to a flame yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> moth to a flame uh, that that pull would be his instagram follower count and twitter follower count uh but yeah no look he's a famous guy he's bringing attention to pizzerias that are that are i guess good uh, I don't give a shit about his thoughts on pizza or whatever, but like that's that's fine. Yeah, if it was in LA or someplace accessible, uh, accessible to me, I'm sure I would go. Uh, and I hope I hope the places benefit from the from the platform he's given them. I was gonna say we need to have an entire episode, I think, on the cult of Dave Portnoy because it brings up the entire question of who gets to be a food reviewer. Like this guy, yeah. is arguably the most influential food critic in all of America. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, look, I'm actually not, I'm not uh, opposed to talking about that. I think it's a really interesting thing. I was actually, I, I was about to say who the hell gives a shit. So I, I mean, I did say who cares about this guy's opinion on pizza. Then I realized I'm talking to you, who's just a dude in Los Angeles <laughs> reviewing uh, tacos and shit. And I was like, I might, might, might come back around here a little bit. <laughs> and people be like, wait, who the fuck is Lucas Cervodia? uh no but you have a legitimate platform like you, I, I think the the hundred the hundred countdown is like a, a real like actual interesting source of like way to, way to do quote-unquote research on a place uh this place being los angeles but pornoy you're exactly right like it's exa- it goes back to the very same conversations we have repeatedly about like who gets to dictate the success or failure of these of these pizzerias i know he's also like a harsh critic right like he doesn't give like high grades out easily which might be kind of tough for a place to hear like for like however many millions of people to hear from a place that he's like not is a kind of panic, right? So I don't know. Yeah. yeah, he's tough, but I do think he's he's consistent at least, you know. And also, you got to hmm. take it with a grain of salt. Like he he's very transparent about the fact that he likes a certain style of pizza. He doesn't like other styles of pizza. So you know, he has a method to his madness, but. Yeah, look, man, it's uh, we live in an interesting time when Dave Portnoy has more influence than the food critic of the New York Times. I think uh, some might say these are the end times. Yeah, they, they might say. Also, should we make uh, me insulting your latest guest a running bit on this podcast? I think this is the second time in a row I've directly like, sort of semi-insulted the person who's about to come on. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, no, Tanya. I- to be fair, I, I have uh, set you up both times. The first time was with uh, Ian Asbury over at Good Clean Fun. You just like ripped natural wine an entire new asshole before, <laughs> r- right before I interviewed him. And uh, I think the bit is going to be, I'm just going to keep setting you up and uh, we'll right. see if you fall for it. This time you did. I this like time it. you did. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, setting you up for success, we're going to be back to discuss one of your favorite topics television uh we'll be back to discuss secret chef in just a moment after the break if you're the proud owner of a hulu subscription you may have noticed that there's a new cooking competition show and that is secret chef brought to us by major domo media of the david chang uh, notoriety father saw have you seen secret chef i watched all of secret chef i think in like a day yeah, well, I, I, I knew you were going to say that because I signed it 
to you as homework and you famously <laughs> always do homework. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> so let's talk first before we dive into the show. I, I really want to talk to cover this because I think David Chang is a fascinating character. First of all, <laughs> he is now a Los Angeles based chef. Obviously he's made his name mostly in New York and he's opened restaurants all over the world, but he now lives in Los Angeles, uh, major domo media situated in Los Angeles. I think we can pretty much claim him as a Los Angeles chef at this point. And he also is someone who has a really loud perspective on what makes for good TV, what makes for good food, mm-hmm. what makes for good content, what makes for good entertainment. So I thought it would be really interesting to apply the same exacting lens that he applies to everything else to his show. And that's why we're doing this today. I'm looking forward to this. Does this mean we're supposed to be like angry dicks about Secret Chef as we're reviewing it or that we're supposed to give it a fair shake? Only if we're angry dicks about the show. Do you know what I mean? Only if, only if uh, only if the show has uh, elicited the angry dick that lives inside of us. And I, I don't know if that's <laughs> the case for you. I don't know. Uh, uh, move yeah, let's yeah. talk real quick about what we think of other Dave Chang properties. So obviously his restaurants, we... We won't touch on because there's a ton of them. We haven't been to all of them. We have been to uh, Major Domo here in Los Angeles, though. And, uh, and it's good. It's very good. Very, very good. He uh, has a podcast. He, he, he put out a book last year. He has another show that he put out last year called Best in Dough with friend of the show, Daniele Uditi of Pizzana, being the, the head judge on it. And it was a pizza competition. Um, what, do you, what have you thought of David Chang's other forays into entertainment thus far? Oh, I also know he had a podcast you really liked. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the things that stand out to me about his non-food-specific excursions, uh, one thing you didn't mention, Ugly Delicious. That was a show oh, yeah. he came up yeah. with on Netflix, which I thought was a really, really cool and maybe his most successful like kind of pop culture entree. He also did Lucky Peach, a magazine for a little while uh, that was really beloved, but I didn't have a chance to read and I think they had to shut down. Um, no, he's been, he, look, he's been on TV for a long time in terms of his creating his own content. I think Ugly Delicious and, um, and the podcast work have been kind of some of the two most interesting things. My favorite podcast, as you alluded to, was actually not his own. It was on Bill Simmons' podcast and it was following the opening of Major Domo. And it was really interesting because you like hear like it was like a year, it took a year, I think, or something. And basically Dave would come on every couple months with Bill and they would talk about like where he was in the process of like locating, building menus, testing stuff out, all the challenges. And you like hear Dave getting like more and more anxious and frenetic. It was an awesome series. I, I highly recommend it, folks can find it. I'm sure if you just search Major Domo, Bill Simmons, Dave Chang, you'll be able to find it online. Um, and it was a great actually setup for season two of The Bear as well because you had like some kind of insight into how it worked. So no, I'm, I've been a fan. I always like it when he pops up. But I, I will say, I don't think everything he tries, I think his own podcast in particular, not not the most successful. Not the most successful. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of his podcast. I think that I appreciate that they try new things. I think they're always trying like new yeah. segments. I don't love the dynamic between him and Chris Ying. I think that it's just so clear. Like David Chang has such a gravitational pull in that room that I, I hate to say this because I think Chris Ying is incredible in his own right, especially the work he did with Lucky Peach. But you could pretty much have anybody in that room with David Chang. I don't think it would matter much. 
Um, and it's it's really not a shot at Chris. I think it's I think it's just the fact that the dynamic doesn't work. In fact, I think some of the best episodes are when Chang is just going off by himself. You know, like mm-hmm. like the unadulterated Chang thoughts are are kind of what you go to that podcast for. Um, in terms of like his other TV shows, yes, Ugly Delicious, that was his hand at sort of like being Bourdain, right? And I thought that was a, a pretty good show. Not it didn't have the same sort of like longevity as a No Reservations or as a Parts Unknown. Like I couldn't have watched an infinite number of seasons of it, and I don't think it's a coincidence that there aren't an infinite number of seasons of it. But in terms of cooking competition shows, he has tried a couple before. The only one I've seen is Best in Dough, and it was okay. It was okay. Mm-hmm. Let's, I, I'll, I'll reserve judgment on that because I think my critiques of that show are going to be similar to the ones of Secret Chef. So let's dive into Secret Chef. Saul, would you mind giving a sort of like a rundown of the premise for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 an interesting concept, and I will say to Dave credit, Dave's credit, whether it's Ugly Delicious or Secret Chef, does a good job of like coming up with interesting angles and a clear perspective on what he's trying to do. And in the case of Secret Chef, it's a group of uh, a handful of chefs. I can't I can't remember the full number. I think maybe ten or eleven, ranging yeah, from pro, yeah, yeah, pro cooks to maybe amateur, like almost semi-pro private chefs to home cooks, and they get put into uh, they put into this challenge. Each episode has a different sort of angle, ingenuity. Uh, palette, etc., that they have to uh, that that test the chef's skills, teamwork. But the key thing is that the judging here is blind and is done by the other competitors. So at the end of each round, the the competitors put their food on the plate. They plate it up just like Top Chef, and then each other contestant has a blind as a sheet where they grade the other dishes, uh, which I think is a really really interesting concept, which I'm sure we'll dive into. At the just like Top Chef, basically at the end of each week, someone gets eliminated with one interesting exception, uh, and then finale we we have a winner. I think we're not trying to spoil anything, so I won't say who wins or what happens. But that's the base premise of Secret Chef. Yeah, no, you did a really good job of summarizing what I think is actually on paper a simple concept, but comes across, I think, as a little confusing when it's when you're actually watching it for the first time. I, I think if you're yeah. to distill the, the the key selling point of Secret Chef is that all of the chefs and the cooks, they cook in their own separate rooms. So nobody yep. sees who is cooking what. So literally, as Saul said, everything is done completely blind. The judging and the cooking too is done all completely blind. I I I think that that's probably like the high idea. That's the that's the idea yeah. that like David Chang was had a, had a gummy daddy's little helper one night and was like, <laughs> you know what would be awesome is if there was a show where the identities were all secret and they built it from there, and yeah. that's where to me it starts to break down a little bit because mm-hmm. first of all, in order to accomplish this, they have to they have to solve for some problems right first of all they have to give every chef an alias so not only Mm -hmm. do you have to learn every single chef's name you also have to learn their alias so like the one guy was named chef arugula the other one is chef donut you know chef uh ramen i forget all the aliases but that already i think creates a barrier to the viewer of like trying to remember and keep straight in your head 
who the hell all these people are. I was this close to stopping watching the first episode because I was like, I, my brain hurts. I've had a tough week at work. I'm not <laughs> sure I can follow this. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely does get complicated. Not to mention also, we've had a lot of conversations about hosts this past summer with Podma Leaping Top Chef. The host of the show is Chefy, a computer animated chef's hat who uh, does comedy and talks to the chefs. I, we're not going to give our opinions on the show quite yet, I think, but like the, the combination of like, here's all these chefs and it's a very kind of like weird, quirky vibe and here's this weird computer screen talking to the chefs and it's a little bit like hammed up, particularly in the first episode. It, I, I will say when I first started watching, it was, a, it was a little, took a minute to get hooked in because of all the stuff. Now I will say maybe by episode two, episode three, I started getting the lay of the land. I was like, okay, here's, here's who's what, here's the, here's the, I was like, for a while I was like, who's a pro and who's a home chef? I can't, I can't keep track of that, right? Who's good, who's supposed to be good, who's supposed to be bad, blah, blah, blah. It is, it is definitely complicated, but I will say a lot of, I think a lot of potential here, but the execution mm -hmm. was a little messy. What were your thoughts on the show itself? Did you like it? Well, so that is exactly what you just said. It was, a, for me, a very grating experience to watch this show because of the tone. Yeah. For some reason, they employed this super like campy, childish tone. I think it's because they were hoping that this would appeal to everybody. Uh, it would appeal to like people who love cooking competition shows, people who love food, potentially also children. And so they they have this animated guest, Sheffy. The sound effects are all like very like cartoon networky there's like horns and like you know beepers and conveyor belts and stuff like that it, it honestly sounds like a nightmare when you're watching it it's the least relaxing show and and not in like a cool the bear way uh where it's like frantic energy it's just grating it's like being at the dmv or something like that and that that I did not enjoy at all. And it actually took me a really long time to get over that and get into the competition. So if I had one like major critique, I was like, this vibe is unnecessary. We don't need to be doing all this. You guys are doing way too much. They, they could tone it down. Uh, like it could have done like maybe one to two notches. I think I will say now I fucking loved it. What? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I had what? a fucking blast. It took an episode. It took an episode for me to get through the, the, yes, everything you said, the tone, the corniness, the campiness, like the personalities of the thing. When I got into it, when I got past that, Sheffy was kind of, kind of had some banger lines. I, yeah, she did. You're shaking your head. Yeah, yeah, she did. She was, she was legit funny. I thought it was weird. And here's the thing that I realized watching it. I'm like, why am I enjoying this so much? This is clearly meant to be something I don't enjoy. We even learned about the show or decided to talk about the show because I sent you an Eater article panning the existence of Secret Chef. I'm watching this having a blast. And I think part of it is exactly what we talked about during our Top Chef recap when I named the Need for Speed or whatever Fast and Furious episode as my favorite because of the game theory element that where it wasn't just about the cooking. There was also like a strategic component, right? Of interacting with like, hey, who, who do you give an advantage to? And who do you like... Who do you like? Uh, I, I and and who do you like? Uh, make sure has no protein or whatever. Like like, how do you decide to go about it? There is a decent amount, a little bit amount of like strategy in this, an interpersonal strategy, and identifying who is which chef, who's behind each alias, who's actually the best person here. You think, and who may not be, and how do you then maybe distribute advantages, or how do you judge their food, and so on and so forth. I enjoyed that part. 
That is the best part of the show. I will take you to task on Sheffy. Literally, the second note I have on my phone here is Sheffy must die. I hated Sheffy. I thought so. My <laughs> I, problem with my problem with Sheffy is twofold. First of all, did not think Sheffy was funny. I don't know what you're talking about. I have a low bar for humor. My favorite actor is Adam Devine. You know, I'm not. I'm not like. I'm not like you know sitting here saying like you know I need. Uh, I need flea bag or something. I'm I'm saying I even I thought Sheffy was lame. And B, I really didn't like, and this was one of my biggest problems with the show, is they try to bring Sheffy in during the cooking challenges. Like they'll put chirons on the screen when a chef talks about some sort of ingredient and it'll it'll say mm. Sheffy says, and then it breaks down like, oh, a chiffonade is this sort of technique in the kitchen. I thought it was like really uh I thought it was talking down to the audience a lot in tone. Oh, I thought I felt like Sheffy and all of the tone of the show was treating the audience like idiots. And I thought, I thought they probably did this because they wanted the show to appeal to people who were not foodies, to people who don't know anything about food and could still, it could still feel accessible to them. I, I think you can achieve that without treating your audience like idiots. And I, I, to me, that that took me out of it. Whenever I saw Sheffy, I was like, okay. Wait, I, I think if, if the show's purpose is to reach a broad audience, I think it makes perfect sense to explain to explain what the chefs are doing, right? Like, it's the same role that Alton Brown plays in Iron Chef, right? When the chefs are doing these really high-level techniques, and Alton Brown, who's maybe a more palatable voice than Sheffy, comes in and explains. He's constantly, all of Iron Chef, he's just explaining, explaining, explaining. Uh, what he's doing right and even top chef they'll have the con- they'll prompt the contestants to explain it so i did not mind that sheffy but- initially was like what's happening and eventually became- i thought she wasn't like hilarious or anything but as a host voice dude she had some she had some barbs in there she kind of developed like kind of like a back and forth with a couple of the contestants sheffy killed it i don't know how they pulled it off because they also had her doing like little facial expressions and stuff like that like an emoji at the end of like a mean text I thought that was a little, I thought that was a blast for what the show is. You have to accept the show for what it is, and you're like, I appreciate that they're doing this with the show. I honestly think the main reason they did it is because they learned from their past shows that one of the biggest contracts goes to the host, and they're like, we got to yeah. cut down on costs. <laughs> we ain't we ain't hey. uh, hiring Wells Adam again to to host this shit. We're gonna <laughs> hire this computer generated person and just. I bet you it was. I bet you it was AI. I bet you all of the jokes were AI. <laughs> hey it's getting it's getting good it's getting good is what i can say <laughs> it's getting good okay look let, let's dive into the specifics of the competition so we've talked about the the show's vibe the setting the host the decor all of that what did you think of the contestants and mixing up the skill levels aka having the professional chefs the private chefs the home cooks the influencers what do you think about that aspect oh yeah the influencers i i enjoyed that I it's it's interesting to watch. It's kind of like when a when like a a sommelier tries like three kinds of wine and tries to figure out which one's like the cheapest, the most expensive, and totally fails. And the same thing with like a normal person, they're like, I don't know. It all it, it's interesting to see like what a high end plate of food looks like or how it's judged by then a home cook versus uh, versus not. And also kind of like it, it kind of makes clearer too like the kinds of ways people fuck up in the kitchen, right? It's like, here's here's where you would fall short. Here's where people fail when they're not pros. And here's what pros look for in how they judge. 
um, judge other food, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, no, I, I like that a lot, especially combined with the blind tasting component. And what's cool too is that the first thing they do is they actually do cook all in one room together, right? At the beginning of the first episode, they each cook a dish with eggs. And you don't know who's a pro and who's not, but you just watch the people cook. And like some people are like, whoa, that guy did this thing. He must be a pro. And he's like a home cook who just has like this kind of cool trick or familiar with some like tasty ingredients in his back pocket. I thought that was cool. I, I like that aspect too. I will give them kudos on that. I think the mix created an interesting dynamic, though for a moment there, I thought that they just messed up the casting because there was one professional chef who for half the show was just running <laughs> away with it. Like he was winning yeah. everything. And I thought, okay, they tried to do the, the skill disparity thing here and they 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 went too hard. They went too hard. They yeah. they brought in LeBron to play with the children for a moment. Yes. I, I think I literally used that metaphor while I was watching. I think I literally said that. Yeah, that that's right. But it was also interesting to see, you know, what eventually happened to that contestant and the fact that in the very first episode, I, I know we're not supposed to spoil, but God damn, our influencers ban at cooking is all I'll say. <laughs> God damn. It's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, that's not a spoiler alert. We all know that influencers are bad at cooking except for this particular influencer. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the judging real quick. So yeah. What do you think about the secret judging? The fact that they all judge each other's food. So interesting, but also potentially a little flawed. Um, I, I think it has to be done. It has to be a part of it. I do think it should be maybe balanced with a uh, maybe one external voice could even be Dave Chang's if you had the time. By the way, I, I have to talk about Dave Chang's cameo on this show because it was hilarious. Uh, no, the thing is this: because these people aren't like the, like Tom and Padma and Gail, and because they're in competition with one another. Like, look, I personally think they did a fair job in 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 like uh, judging each other's food. I don't think there was any like taking dives. I'm sure they have like contingencies. Like, hey, look, you have to like fairly do it if you like figure out like oh, XX Chef is a pro, they're running away with it, I'm going to tank their food even though it's good. I don't think that happened. But there is a conflict of interest. And there is like a a home cook doesn't necessarily know when food is always done particularly well. It's just their particular tastes, right? Yeah. They're not a, a food expert. And that's both interesting in a dynamic and, you know, maybe a little, is it unfair? I don't know. But like, excuse the judging in a way where it's not like a top chef relative like consistency. Here's what we're judging. Here's the criteria. It's much more inconsistent, which is fun from a chaos standpoint. And I enjoyed it, given again, accepting the show for what it is, which is basically like a chaotic like bunch of people in in a, in a room together, um, or in separate rooms, I should say, eating each other's food. But it does take away from like, oh, are, are we really getting the best contestant as the winner here? Maybe not. I I think that what the, it did for me is it made me deeply dislike some contestants because of the way yeah. that they judge the food. So yeah, in yeah. fact, we won't give spoilers, but the, the person who ends up winning, I thought <laughs> was one of the harshest, most unfair judges. And I thought <laughs> while he was judging, I, I gave away their gender. Oh, well, um, <laughs> I thought while they were judging, if this person wins, I'm going to be pissed because yeah, I, 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 it felt like they were being overly critical at every single turn. Even when some of the professional chefs ate something and were like, damn, that slaps. I really like that. This person was like, mm, not enough heat, not enough salt, not enough acid. It just, it just 
to me, that is a really serious flaw in this competition that somebody can be a really harsh critic and it can work in their favor. And it, it, it cheapened it a little bit to me that that person ultimately ended up winning because it kind of bore out like you can be a harsh critic and win this thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you. So it, it goes back to what the show is and isn't. You're exactly right. It is, it is not, it's like an unfair balance for one guy to be a particularly harsh critic. And he even had that reputation. Like his alias are like, yo, this alias like really comes after us, like said this mean thing. At the same time, if you take it more as like an entertaining reality show, very entertaining. Very entertaining that he said all that mean shit. And that he wasn't even, you know, no spoilers, but like, I don't think he was the greatest chef in the room by any means. And like just watching the dynamics and learning it, like watching personalities play out, right? That's This is really a show about personalities more than food, right? It's a show about like competition dynamics more, to, more than it is about food, I really think, right? Um, yeah. I think Dave Chang, who uh, made an appearance on the show, came to realize that he wasn't really getting the best food in the world. I, I don't know what his goal was, but the way I've seen Dave Chang a lot on screen and he comes in and I'm like, Oh, he respects nobody in this room. Yes. It's true. <laughs> I don't think, it's I don't true. think he, gave shit, he didn't give shit about any of those people. It was like, you guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. How did I do? How, how did I end up here is how he like looked on screen. And that's because it's not a great food competition show. It's a great like reality competition show in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't use the word great, but Dave <laughs> Chang's cameo was really funny for that reason. I did think he doesn't really work as the main for like the main judge in a show, and that's nah. why I think it's 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 good that they did Sheffy in that in that sense, um, and that they have them judge each other because if he has to be the Tom Colicchio of the show, it just doesn't hold the same gravitas. Like he nope. tried that at the end, doing a little bit of the. Tom Colicchio watching people cook silently and judging them. And I was like, yeah, th this isn't working for me. He's doing a Tom yeah. Colicchio impression. And it's like, it's like seeing Tom Colicchio, a bald dude playing Co Tom Colicchio on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, you know? Right. <laughs> I thought those, those scenes were really funny, though, too. Just like Dave Chang silently staring at the chef and they'd be like, hey. And he like just wouldn't respond. He's just like eating their food silently, like a horror movie. I enjoyed that a lot. I also enjoyed that he was clearly so frustrated by how bad some of the contestants were at cooking that at one point he was like why do you do this with a challenge you should have just made like this instead and she goes okay well you can cook with a steamer try it and he just making because like a delicious dish with a steamer in this case yeah <laughs> well let's talk about that for a second because one of the other things i didn't like about this show were the challenges themselves so in theory i i was down with the concept you alluded to this but every single episode is supposed to challenge one aspect of being a chef, whether it's uh, improvisation or teamwork or palate, etc. But the challenges themselves were so mm. derivative. Like I was thinking back, I was oh, playing yeah. them back in my head today. I'm pretty sure I've seen every single one of those challenges on Top Chef. Yeah. Yeah. Look, you're not wrong. <laughs> I, I think, I think, I think maybe like 80% of them have literally been Top Chef challenges. I don't mind. I mean, like, look, they're, they're derivative in that maybe you can, you can mark the show off for creativity, I guess, uh, ironically, given I think that was one of the challenges, but uh, they're good challenges. They're good. They're good. They're good premises. That's, that's kind of the thing. Like the, the chefs, the, uh, I mean, this episode one, so I don't feel like a huge spoiler, but like the chefs, like blind, like having to team up on a dish blindly, right. Not seeing what the other one's doing. 
that always hits. That's always a good time, right? So the, the tunnels yeah. themselves I found to be fun at the very least. I think I'm just disappointed. I'm just disappointed because mm-hmm. Dave Chang talks such a big game about thinking outside of the box, doing things differently. And he has some really interesting takes on his podcast when he tries to tries to do that, when he tries to come up with these crazy ideas. It's like he has a whole segment on the podcast called like the the bad good idea or something like that, right? A bad idea that's actually a good idea. And <laughs> I just would have loved some of that out of the box thinking to appear in the challenges here. And I just think that was not it at all. Yeah, yeah. And I do wonder if part of it was like, look, we're trying so much new shit already with this, with like our chefy and and the whole concept that like, let's keep the challenges in a sweet spot that we know that they've been tested and tried and we don't completely fall flat on our face. I, could, I wonder if that was part of the conversation they had. And I do think like, look, I think your critiques of the show are relative, are basically fair, except for Sheffy, who's who's a blast. Uh, <laughs> I, I think with a few small tweaks, this show could really hit with a, with maybe a, a slightly better recruiting class, uh, some some clarity on how the competition works. Because I personally think the biggest flaw of the show was at one point they do like a mini last chance kitchen, kind of like sixty percent of the way into the show, and you've not been told this will be a thing, and. Like it's really weird and random and seems unfair because no one was told that this was a potential opportunity. So that could be ironed out. But otherwise, I think they have all the ingredients there and, and enough of a platform to take the challenges to another level next time, hopefully. I think uh, cut your losses. Don't make a second season. <laughs> try something else. <laughs> Please make a second season. This is a blast. Get some better guest judges on. Get some, make some small tweaks. This will be a great show for Hulu. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I don't, we'll see how it does. You know, I, I don't think Best in Doe got renewed for a second season. Um, we'll have to see if this one does better. But I did find this, you know, my overall take on this is the show gave me Stockholm Syndrome because I was sad when it ended. Uh, I don't think I enjoyed a single moment of it while it was happening. What? But... Once it was over, I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to miss watching this. Um, That's because you so, were entertained, bro. That's because you liked it deep down. <laughs> I, I think, as I said, I think, I think Stockholm Syndrome is a better comparison. Um, it, I, it, it, like gave me, it gave me a high degree of emotion. And whether that emotion was hatred yeah. or, or you know, uh, disdain or jealousy, because I sure, think we sure, could make sure, a better sure. show. Um, the, the absence the absence of that emotion left me wanting wanting it more, if that makes sense. So, hey. you know, we'll see. look, I won't be mad if it gets another season, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely not rooting for it. Sure, yeah. And luckily for me, after I watched Secret Chef, I was able to jump right over to Five Star Chef, which is a show that I hope we talk about, which is like a very, like the other side of the world of Secret Chef, right? In terms of food competition and really interesting to watch back to back. And I think... Uh, really compelling in its own its own different ways. I started Five Star Chef on Netflix, and I immediately fell in love with it. So we're definitely going to yeah. be reviewing that um, in the Fuck next yeah. few weeks. Here, uh, we'll do a we'll do a Five Star Chef episode. But that one, listeners, if you have a chance, go and check that one out. And uh, I do think we should do that here in a couple weeks. Hell yeah, love it. 
All right, bro. Well, look, you've given me some of your, you've sacrificed some of your time in the Windy City to spend it here with us and our listeners. So I, would, I just want to thank you from the bottom of our heart. I want to thank you for being vulnerable and open about your uh, your thoughts about intercourse with dolphins. I sincerely hope you'll go out and try a tavern style pie and a Chicago style hot dog. And I expect you to do neither. That that sounds exactly right to me. I'm about to go try some Ethiopian food. In fact, neither of the assignments you gave me. But look, if I come across either, I'll let you know. But it's not happening. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) It's not happening. Father Saul, enjoy the Windy City. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks as always to Father Saul. Man, what a guy. He took time out of his trip to the Windy City to spend an hour with us. How lucky are we? Thank you to you, dear listener, of course, for taking time out of your day. And and if you wouldn't mind, please go leave us a rating, a review. Subscribe to this podcast if you should be so inclined. Apparently, ratings and reviews really help, so I would be eternally grateful if you took 30 seconds out of your day to do that. We'll be back next week with another episode. We have an incredible guest lined up, so I am very much looking forward to that. If you're looking for me in the meantime, you can find me at The LA Countdown on Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find us on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.